From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The biggest landlord in the U.S., the federal government, is making a big push for greener buildings. We can do these investments that create good-paying local jobs. We can reduce energy costs, which saves taxpayer money. And all of that makes the planet and our people healthier. On this Earth Day, new and old-fangled ways the U.S. government is making its real estate more sustainable. Then, in the face of climate change and water worries, can you still have an attractive yet eco-friendly yard? The answer is yes. We all know bluegrass lawn. What we don't know is all the great alternatives that exist to a bluegrass lawn. We're not trying to eliminate grass. This is a prairie. This is a grassland by nature, so grass belongs here. Later, how climate anxiety inspired a Fort Collins musician. If we lose Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. By some estimates, buildings account for about 40 percent of greenhouse gas emissions globally. The biggest landlord in the U.S. says it's making a new push for greener buildings, including here in Colorado. I'm talking about the federal government, which has its largest campus outside of Washington in Metro Denver. There's actually a microgrid at that site. And so there's eight megawatts right now of solar energy that's produced in the solar arrays that covers about somewhere over 22 percent of the energy needs at that site right now. Robin Carnahan leads the federal agency that runs all the buildings and quite a few vehicles, too. It's called the General Services Administration. She says they'll keep upping the amount of solar until it and perhaps wind completely power the federal center in Lakewood. And they're working on storage. We also are doing a lot with the National Renewable Energy Lab that's nearby over in Golden, Colorado, and we've been collaborating with them really closely. We launched something um, to work on bi-directional battery storage. So think about the fact that you can use all those solar arrays when the sun is shining, use cars and other things, right, and other battery systems to store that and then be able to, to use it at night from the battery storage. So cars on campus, on Federal Center, become mobile storage units that can then feed the grid back? Yes, Absolutely. And we do this all through a program called the Green Proving Ground, which has been around for about 10 years and has helped hundreds of companies that have innovative projects get going. There was one that joined us last week when we were in Denver, and they do quad pane windows. We intend to really expand the use of those across the complex. What's different about these quad windows? So quad pane windows are instead of having just one pane of glass, there are four. So it has much better insulating properties. And it's a Colorado company, this uh, Alpen Windows. We help companies like that get a foothold uh, in doing projects with the government. And because of how successful it was, the payback in the first set we put in was under two years, um, which makes great economic sense for taxpayers. 
And so we intend to do a lot more of those on the Denver campus and hopefully in other parts of the country. When you're budgeting for federal real estate uh, and you are looking at energy smart technology, do you start from the assumption that it will cost more on the front end but pay off in the long run? We think of these things as investments, right? And so the same way you invest in improvements to your home because you know it's going to reduce energy costs uh, and increase your resale value, the same thing ought to be happening in the government. You know, we had a really great example in Grand Junction where we did a, a renovation of a historic courthouse. A lot of people said that, you know, these old buildings are hard to renovate or hard to improve, but the Wayne Aspinall Federal Building in Grand Junction is now a lead platinum building. It's net zero and it's the first historic, you know, building on the historic register that has achieved net zero. And the government did that. And we did it by just doing smart things by, you know, changing the heat systems and doing high efficiency building controls and high efficiency lighting and windows and having some solar on site. Wayne Aspinall named for the former U.S. representative. You know, the buildings on the Federal Center campus, uh, many of them are office buildings now. They weren't always that. Uh, these are strange and wonderful buildings, I imagine, to retrofit. Just give us a sense of what you're contending with there. This is one of the largest yeah, federal uh, employment centers, by the way, west of the Mississippi. It is, in fact, the largest outside of Washington uh, is the federal uh, Denver Federal Center. You know, it's it is. It was set up originally, I'm sure you know, as a munitions facility back in World War II. And so they're stout warehouse-style big buildings. And it turns out you can do quite a bit with those because they're, they're such solid building material. We toured one. It was Building 48 that used to be a you know munitions facility and then was a warehouse uh, for the National Archives. But we're turning that into a beautiful, light-filled, net-zero, clean-energy office for the Department of Interior. It's going to not only save money by relocating employees out of currently leased, commercially leased space into a federally-owned space, that's going to save $6 million a year, but all these upgrades are going to save millions more in energy costs. It occurs to me that a lot of energy efficiency is really kind of... (laughs) undramatic and unsexy. It's like, uh, what color is a building? How is it oriented to the sun? Does it have insulation? How much is the federal government's investment in really old, reliable technology? That's You're exactly right. An awful lot of this stuff is very well proven out stuff, and we just need to do upgrades. But then there are also these new things, like I mentioned, the quad pane windows or the charging infrastructure that we can put in. Do buildings present a particular opportunity in the fight against climate change? Like, is it easier to go green in uh, real estate than it is, you know, to change how we get around or how we grow food? Look, I, I think there, there are opportunities everywhere, but we, we know that in the building sector, it's at least a triple win. We can do these investments that create good paying local jobs. We can reduce energy costs, which saves taxpayer money. And all of that makes the planet and our people healthier. It's been happening for a while. So we know what the costs and the savings are going to look like. And frankly, when you're talking to people about investing, they want to have some clarity about what the payback is going to be on that. When it comes to 
the federal fleet, over 400,000 vehicles, oh. sort of non-postal vehicles. We want to shift all that to as much as we can to electric vehicles and, and zero emission vehicles as well. Uh, that's going to take time because the market has to catch up with that. There aren't vehicles to supply all of that demand right now, but that's the long-term plan here. Is Congress on board with this? Uh, in other words, they hold the purse strings. Do members of Congress see the benefits of, of an investment like this? Look, there are plenty of people in Congress and across the country who see this as wise investments. And part of that's been included in the infrastructure package that already passed Congress. There's lots more that we could be doing, and GSA is advocating for that every day. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Robin Carnahan leads the U.S. General Services Administration. When we come back, your yard can be pretty and sustainable. Really, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado skiers and boarders are saying goodbye to winter in the traditional way. By face planting into a frosty pond. The objective of pond skimming is to skim all the way across the surface. But really, it's about... Just that, like, crowd enthusiasm. Everybody's celebrating the end of a great year. Story and lots of pictures at CPR.org. Lawns and gardens are a microcosm of some of the biggest issues facing Colorado. Water, climate change, and all the politics that go with. On this Earth Day, we'll revisit a conversation from a few years back one that's perhaps even more relevant today. It debunks some perennial myths in Colorado that a beautiful lawn has to be thirsty, that xeriscaping is all rocks and cactus. We'll also consider how landscaping can not only be resilient in the face of a warming planet, but help combat the trend. Our story begins with a question that came through Colorado Wonders from a woman in Lakewood, Kara Ferris. Hi, Kara. Nice How are to you? Meet you? Nice to meet you. Thanks for having us. What's your question for Colorado Wonders? I am curious why we are still planting so much bluegrass with all the new construction that's going on in, well, especially along this western part of the town. I'm wondering why we're still doing that when we're asked to conserve. I noticed bluegrass in your front yard. Yes. Are you a part of the problem? <laughs> I had no choice. You had no choice. Tell me about that. When we built the house eight years ago, there were certain mandates given to us from the city and the HOA, and that included a certain amount of turf, bluegrass turf, um, and the tree lawn, as well as you know a certain number of shrubs that we had to have in the front yard and a number of evergreen trees or a number of deciduous trees, etc. Why don't you walk us around your property? Sure. Look at this grassy lawn here by the side of your house, Kara. What do you think of it? It's never looked this good. (laughs) Oh, you got it nice for us. No, actually, the rain has cooperated this year. So it's been really nice to see it this green. I mean, this is the conundrum, right? Grass, it just feels so nice. It looks great. But there's that lingering feeling that it doesn't quite belong. Yes, yes. Especially having grown up in Albuquerque. And where everybody says, you know, xeriscaping, water, water restrictions, water-wise gardening, et cetera, et cetera. Give us an example of the kinds of things you're curious about changing. Uh, this lawn wraps around the side and the back of your beautiful home here in Lakewood. I think one of the biggest issues we might be facing 
given that we really don't have an option to change the lawn, is our sprinkler system. For answers about that and sustainable lawns, we turned to Allison Peck, a designer and contractor who founded Matrix Gardens in Boulder. She previously taught sustainable gardening at Front Range Community College. Since our conversation, I'm saddened to note that Allison passed away last April. As you'll hear, her legacy is spreading a passion for landscapes. Hi there, Allison. Hello. What perspective can you lend on the idea of mandates for grass? Well, I think it's a bigger question than mandates. I think what's really happened is that bluegrass lawns have become the accepted landscape here. If you buy a new home, usually the builder will landscape the front of the yard at least, and what they do is roll out bluegrass lawn, put in the required number of trees, number of shrubs, and everybody knows how to take care of bluegrass lawn. And it's attractive, right? And it's inexpensive. It's very inexpensive to roll out sod. Anything else is probably going to be more expensive up front. In the long run, there are lots of alternatives to lawns that will be less expensive when you keep in mind the cost of watering, mowing, fertilizing, all the maintenance that's required. But up front, lawn is inexpensive and everybody knows how to take care of it. You pull out your weed and feed, you've got your lawn taken care of. Any other type of landscape is culturally a challenge. I also think that if you had two homes side by side Mm -hmm. and one had the classic green lawn Mm -hmm. and one had more of a high desert look, I have a feeling one would sell faster than the other. Do you think that's true? I don't think that's our only alternative. So we all know bluegrass lawn. What we don't know is all the great alternatives that exist to a bluegrass lawn. So the alternative could be a high plains native plant landscape, but it could also be, um, honestly, it could look like an English cottage garden and still be a water-conserving garden. We've done formal Victorian xeriscapes that used probably at most a third of the water of a bluegrass lawn. Classic, formal symmetry, gorgeous colors, low water. And grass I can roll around in? Some grass. Yeah, we're not trying to eliminate grass. This is a prairie. This is a grassland by nature, so grass belongs here. It's just a matter of growing this bluegrass, which is a high-water-use plant. I'm curious what those alternative grasses Mm -hmm. are. You hear about buffalo grass, but almost nothing else. Right. So I started my business in 84 passionate about resource conservation. So I started doing xeriscaping back in 1984. Xeriscape was invented by Denver Water. And xeriscape comes from xeric, meaning dry, and landscape. So yeah. you have a xeriscape. But xeriscape covers a wide array of alternatives. So it could be a landscape that simply had a little bit less lawn. It could be a landscape that was all lawn, but it was using a more water-conserving turf. There's so many different alternatives there. So xeriscape is not rock and cactus. It's something, an idea we've been fighting since day one. Ah. Rock and cactus don't even belong here. I mean, this is a grassland, not a desert. You know, I tried some yucca in this yard, and it lasted a year. But there's tons of yucca that grow wild. I just picked the wrong species. And it may also be a matter of your soil. Most of us along the front range are gardening in heavy clay, which we love to curse because it's dry. When it's dry, it's like concrete. But clay actually holds a lot of moisture. So I think part of the difference between our landscapes here and what you grew up in in Albuquerque is that Albuquerque has a sandier soil and it doesn't hold water. So 
but going back to you had a question about alternative lawn grasses, I have to say I've tried everything I could find, <laughs> and there is no replacement for bluegrass in a yard that's getting a lot of wear and tear. So bluegrass is a great lawn grass. It's very resilient. Kids can wear holes in it. Dogs can pee and, wear, and dig in it, and it will grow right back. It's really indestructible. If you stop watering it, it'll turn brown. You start watering it again, it comes right back. So there aren't many grasses that will do that here in this climate. We have used a lot of turf-type tall fescue. Uh, tall fescue. Turf-type tall fescue. So it is slightly coarser leaf, but you wouldn't notice it unless they were side-by-side side with bluegrass. It has a much deeper root system, which makes it much more water-conserving. We've also tried buffalo grass. I was just down in the Comanche grasslands in southeast Colorado, and there are square miles of beautiful blue-green buffalo grass. It's in some ways a miracle grass. doesn't need any water. You don't need to mow it. No water? No water. It's a native grass. I just, I mean, assuming you get some rain and snow in sure. a particular year, you don't need any extra water. But the drawback is it wants it hot and dry. It wants to be baking down in southeast Colorado. And most of the time, almost every time we've tried it here, we've tried it many times, it is invaded by cool season weeds and grasses because it's what we call a warm season grass. It's only green once the soil warms up in the spring, which is usually in May. And then it goes dormant probably sometime in October when the soil cools down again. Now, I have to say, you are not convincing me that I should have an alternative to bluegrass so far. Well, it all depends on what you want. In what we've developed is our approach to low water landscapes, water conserving landscapes, we're generally not trying to get rid of the bluegrass lawn. We're just trying to be smart about where do you need a lawn and how big does it need to be so that it's not just the default landscape is always bluegrass. Sure, let's use it, particularly if you have kids and dogs. Maybe if you don't have kids and dogs, you use turf-type tall fescue. We've been playing with blue-gramma grass, which is another native prairie grass. So, the, so a mix. Exactly. Okay. So keep some lawn. If your number one priority is to conserve water, Kara, you got it just right. The first thing is to think about how you're watering it. My husband curses all the time about how inefficient the sprinklers are in the tree lawn and how we water the sidewalk probably as much as we're watering the grass and the trees that are planted there. And you can see through the entire neighborhood that the tree lawn exists. Like I said, it's beautiful, but no one has an efficient watering method on the tree lawn. I'd love to know how to water that effectively. So that's a tricky one. It's very tough to efficiently water small lawn areas. And actually, when you look at where you might not need lawn, those small strips are the number one place that you probably don't need your lawn because they're surrounded by paving. They tend to dry out. You can't really get sprinklers that water a strip efficiently. So you're almost always inevitably watering the sidewalk. This is, to be clear, the area between the sidewalk and the street that Mm -hmm. Kara's talking about. It's this band of grassiness. And you're saying these are notoriously hard to water efficiently. Right. And they're notorious water users because they tend to be so hot and dry. And a place like Albuquerque has been working on successful street landscapes for a long time. And it sounds like they've come up with some designs and plants that work very well. In the Front Range, I see communities really struggling with, what do we put in the medians? What do we put in the tree lawns if it's not lawn? And it's, it's a cultural thing, you know? The, the people who are designing it, the people who are maintaining it, have to learn what else to plant and how to maintain it. 
right? So it takes a while to change. It takes a while for, Kara, if you decided that you were going to do, maybe take out some of this front lawn and do a mix of other plantings, it takes a while for neighbors to say, oh, look, that's actually a lot more interesting than a lawn. I think if you'd seen this landscaping done well, you mm -hmm. wouldn't be so cautious about changing it, but we just don't get the exposure to it here in the Front Range. So let me go back to watering. We got a little distracted. So yes, the tree lawn is a classic example of a place that's hard to water efficiently, but a lot of lawns, honestly, the sprinkler system is not that well laid out and nobody wants a brown spot in their lawn. And this is particularly true for corporate campuses and multifamily housing, condos, things like that. It's very, very common that two or 300% as much water is being applied as is really needed just so we don't have a brown spot, right? <laughs> so one of the first things to do, whether it's a home landscape or a larger landscape, is to have what's called an irrigation audit done. So it's kind of like having an energy audit for your house or even a tune-up for your car. Um, somebody can come take a look at how your sprinklers are laid out, see if they're watering efficiently, evenly, and there's actually, you can get a certification from the Irrigation Association, which is the National Association as an Irrigation Auditor. So there are people certified in doing this, and there are also a lot of cities, towns, and water providers that offer irrigation audits. Sounds expensive. Not if the city or water provider is helping cover the cost of it. Ah. So there are, a lot of cities and, and water providers are very concerned with water con conservation. More and more people same or less amount of water. So it, it is a growing priority in a lot of places. So you can have an irrigation audit, you can tune up your irrigation system. And the other huge thing you can do is get what's called a smart controller. There are a variety of different ways they work, but essentially they're monitoring the local weather or the moisture level in the soil. And they're actually modifying the irrigation schedule so that it reflects the actual weather. Because usually people turn on their irrigation timer in the spring, Water is the same level all season, turn it off in the fall, but our lawns don't need as much water in the spring and fall. So you can save 30 or 40% on your water use just by using a smart controller. And is a smart controller expensive? I mean, as a contractor, they're probably $1 to $200. I don't th they're quite common by now. My water bill can attest to leaks within the sprinkler system being a large issue as well. What is your water bill? You know, actually... It's cheap, I have to say. In the winter, we run, run about $26, and then when we're watering in the summer, it's about 100 So significant amount of water use, but I still think that that's pretty cheap. You almost sound like you feel guilty about it. I, well, if, if it came down to simple economics, I would think that if they charged more, we'd use less. It's, again, a slow process. I don't think it was that long ago that the city of Denver actually did not have individual water meters for homes. Nobody was watching how much was being used. So and Here in Lakewood, do you have an individual water meter? Yeah, we do. Yeah, it's on the other side of the house. But we had another question about lawns and gardens and xeriscaping through Colorado Wonders from Emily Blender of Grand Junction. She couldn't be with us, but she asks, I'm wondering how to transition my yard that's landscaped to a more climate friendly yard and what time frame do I have to get it completed? So this is an acknowledgement that not only are we in an arid climate, but that with climate change, things are probably going to get arider. Mm -hmm. uh, wh what about transitioning? So many of us are looking at our yards and wondering, what can we do that's helpful? What can we do that 
can make a difference. And water conservation is certainly something that's going to be more and more an issue. And since most of us have largely bluegrass lawns, the first place to look at is those places in your yard where it's hard to keep up your bluegrass lawn. Where is it turning brown? Where is the irrigation not working so well? It could be a small lawn area. It could be a south-facing area, an area that's particularly sunny. Uh, for whatever reason, it's not working well as lawn. Or it may be a far corner that, where you're never using the lawn, so there's no reason to have it. Interesting. It's as if you're letting nature guide you. Yes. You, one of the things that's really exciting and interesting about landscaping along the Front Range is that what we call microclimates make a huge difference. Because we're at a high altitude, it's dry, it's sunny, what will grow well on the south side of your house is entirely different than what will grow well on the north side of your house. So most yards have some parts of the lawn that do very well and other parts that always struggle no matter what you do. So an easy place to start making a change is those places where it's hard to keep up the lawn. Hmm. And so then you want to think about what would you love to have? To me, that's one of the joys of gardens is they're your place to create something that you'll really enjoy. You know, some people love lawn mowing. If you want to mow your lawn, just choose something that doesn't need as much water. If you hate lawns, but you just wish you had more birds, bees, and butterflies, put in a habitat garden, which can be very water conserving. And what might those plants be? Oh, goodness. There's worlds and worlds of them. Um, one of the things to know if you're interested in bringing in pollinators and birds into your yard is that having native plants is very valuable. One of the really eye-opening things that's come up in the last probably 10, 15 years is that insects are actually wonderful in your garden. They're not a problem. <laughs> so we all love birds, but it turns out 90%, over 90% of all birds, even if they're mostly seed eaters or uh, fruit eaters, when they're raising their young, they need insects. So you actually want native plants in your yard. You want to let the insects live on them because that is the bottom of the food chain. That's what supports all the birds you might enjoy huh. in your yard. Give me a few of your favorites. Actually, a plant that's fun in a lot of different ways is a sunflower. Anything that's in the sunflower family is great for pollinators. They've got all these little flowers in the inside of the flower that are full of pollen. So you'll just find them swarming with all types of bees, honeybees, wild bees. And then those sunflowers set seeds. And there those seeds are for all the birds to eat. So lots of other flowers are in that family. Sunflowers, the native blanket flower is a great native flower, black-eyed Susans, the fall asters are also in that same family. There's also lots of plants that are in the mint family. If you are raising honeybees, mint is one of the number one plants to grow for honeybees. And then they can be used later in mojitos. Oh, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Kara, do you have mojitos ready for us? I, I do have some mint growing. Oh, good. Okay. So we have the ingredients at yeah. least. Yeah, absolutely. Do any of those plants sound familiar? And yes. talk to us about what you did in the places where you could. I tried to go with that butterfly-friendly, bee-friendly plantings in some respects. I did lavender and the sage, actually, mm -hmm. is covered with bees. I also planted a rider thyme. Mm -hmm. It's a ground cover, that, right. and when it blooms, it seems to mm -hmm. be covered with the bees. What about trees? Are there certain types of low-water trees? Here's one of the secrets about suburban landscapes. In a suburban landscape where most everybody has lawns, those lawns are being watered a lot, and there's a lot of just residual moisture in the soil. So to be perfectly honest, if I put 
a native low water use tree right next to the lawn, it might drown. Oh, that's so interesting. So our lawn decisions, our grass decisions are driving our tree decisions. Right. And the thing to remember about trees is that a 20 foot tall tree might have roots going 20 feet out in every direction. And plants are smart enough to get their roots where they can harvest the water. So all these plants that are growing around the lawn, I can guarantee you, if we had x-ray vision and could see what the roots were doing, those roots are all under the lawn because that's where the water is. Yeah, I've learned that the hard way. I've tried to plant something other than these pussy willows here, but we have a French drain that runs along this side, and there's so much water that comes down in this area that I've unfortunately killed some beautiful trees Mm -hmm. um, trying to get them to take here. I'd like to go back to this idea of the HOA, Mm -hmm. the government body everybody loves to hate. And I, I say that as a vice president of my own HOA. But are HOAs driving a lack of culture change? We work with a lot of customers, a lot of clients who live in neighborhoods that have HOAs. And to be perfectly honest, we have never had a landscape design turned down because it didn't have enough lawn. So our experience, and HOAs vary, but there was actually state law passed sometime in the last 10, 15 years, maybe longer ago, that prohibits HOAs from prohibiting xeriscape, essentially. I think they can require a certain percentage, but they can't require that it be all bluegrass. That's really interesting, sort of in the same regard as our solar panels. Mm -hmm. They can't tell us we couldn't put them in. So if we wanted to, we would be able to get approved to some degree. So what I would do is check in detail the HOA guidelines, because every HOA is different. And my experience is that if you present them with what is clearly a well-thought-out design and they can see that it will be attractive, that's usually their primary concern is they want to preserve an attractive neighborhood and good resale values. And so if you've clearly put some thought into it, maybe show them some illustrations, some photos of some of the plants, my experience is that they'll be perfectly happy with it. So I have another question, and it's about soil amendment. When we put in the lawn... We, it was another requirement for Denver Water that we amended the soil to a certain amount. So you have Denver Water in Lakewood? Yes. And I'm wondering how much effect the amendment has on the water intake of the, of the grass or the success of the grass. Now, amendment sounds positively constitutional. Help us understand what that means. <laughs> so a soil amendment is simply something that's added to the soil to change the quality of the soil. So usually we talk about a soil amendment... Uh, as something that will make it more fertile, that'll make it a better medium for plants to grow in. And for bluegrass lawn, what we usually do is add compost. So the compost adds nutrients to the soil. It also adds organic matter to the soil, which allows water to penetrate more deeply. And the organic matter is actually also food for this amazing world of soil life that's in our soil. Um, And for a bluegrass lawn, you definitely want to do a good job amending the soil. I think part of the reason bluegrass lawns have gotten a bad reputation for water use is that so many suburbs, the house was built, the foundation soil was spread out around the yard, and the sod was simply rolled out over this nasty, heavy subsoil clay. It would be hard for anything to grow in that condition. So another thing that's useful to know, though, is that a lot of our xeric plants, our low water use plants, and particularly natives, actually love our nasty clay. 
they don't want chocolate cake soil. And you try to grow a, a native plant or a xeric plant like this be beautiful blue stem joint fir over here in a chocolate cake soil, and it'd get huge, it'd get floppy, it's ugly, it's more susceptible to insects. So soil amendment is good for some things, not good for other things. But it sounds to me like if you plant xeric, you are going to have to do a lot less amending. By and large, yes. It, it depends. Again, xeriscape covers such a wide world, but particularly if you were xeriscaping with native plants and plants that are well adapted here, then no, you don't generally need to do soil amendment. To circle back to Emily's concerns about climate change, help us put that into context and the kind of growing responsibility that mm -hmm. homeowners have. Right. Many of us are concerned. We see the weather getting wackier. We see it getting hotter. We wonder what we can do in our daily lives that would make a difference. So if we think about climate-friendly landscaping, there's a few different aspects that really come to mind. Surprisingly enough, um, one of the biggest things we can do to reduce greenhouse gases is to reduce our use of refrigeration and make it more efficient. There's a great book edited by Paul Hawken called Drawdown, and that was one of their number one things that could be done globally to reduce greenhouse gases was to reduce our need for cooling. And You mean air conditioning? Air conditioning. Air conditioning and refrigeration. It's a, it's a wider picture, but you can actually, for example, reduce the need for air conditioning in your home by planting shade trees in the appropriate places, generally on the south side of your house, so that you've got shade on the house during the summer. And that can make a significant difference in your air conditioning bill, or maybe you can get by without it. So another part of having a climate-friendly landscape is to reduce your fossil fuel use. And it may not be obvious, but when you mow a lawn, when you use chemical fertilizers on your lawn, you are using fossil fuels. And it's again, it's because we have so many millions of acres of lawn in this country, it actually adds up and is a significant energy use. So you're not only helping your pocketbook, mm -hmm. you're not only helping your water use, mm -hmm. but you're having an effect on greenhouse gas emissions exactly. as well. What does that make you think, Kara? Well, there's a happy coincidence for us that our tree lawn has, you know, what will be large shade trees that will, will um, provide shade on our home. Eventually. Eventually. Your kids might be in college. <laughs> True. Another piece of climate friendly is, one, to reduce how you're contributing to the production of greenhouse gases. But delightfully enough, the other thing that landscapes can do is actually sequester carbon. So that's the word we use for we've got too much carbon in the atmosphere, Put it in the ground. Put it in the ground, exactly. So you can sequester carbon in your yard in a couple different ways. One is by increasing the level of organic matter in your soil. So the compost that was added before the lawn was laid is one way of getting carbon into your soil. Yeah, but you just said that xeric gardens don't require as much of that. They don't, and there's other ways to sequester carbon. So plants are made up of carbon. That's what they do. They pull it into themselves and they sequester it in their roots, in their trunks. And so one of the things that you can do in your yard is simply grow more plants, just get more what we call biomass. And that includes what we can't see underground. Buffalo grass that we talked about earlier might be an inch tall above ground. It might have roots that go eight feet deep. Oh. And upright junipers in New Mexico might have roots that go 200 feet deep. And all of that root is capturing carbon. Exactly. So it, think about plants that have tentacles. 
Deep down inside. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so the trick is that we can't really see them, but we can change how we water to encourage them to develop a deep root system. Ooh. So our lawns, for example, we usually water two or three times a week. We don't water for that long, and that's appropriate. Bluegrass really won't grow more than about a one-foot deep root system, no matter what you do. But the plants around the lawn, if you water them less frequently, so you might water them once a week, or we have landscapes that have been in for 10 or so years, they're watering them three or four times a summer. That's it. And what they've done is they've watered infrequently but deeply. So they're creating a large wetted area underground and the plant roots grow into that. It encourages them to develop this big root system which sequesters carbon but also helps them honestly forage for their own water so they're not dependent on your water. Kara, have you ever given that much thought to the roots? No, no thoughts to the root. But it is bringing me back to the smarter sprinkler. Mm-hmm arrangement. So right now all our trees and plants are on a different zone mm-hmm. and we could easily program that to run differently yes. than our sodded areas. So that's something we can certainly do. Mm-hmm. Well, do you feel like you are wondering a little bit less now? Well, I still wonder about the mandates and when that might change. But now I don't feel as guilty <laughs> about having um, so much bluegrass. Do you think Kara's guilt should be assuaged? Well, and I encourage you to look into the actual letter of the homeowner regulations, because my guess is that you could probably reduce your lawn area and replace it with something that you would really enjoy. And maybe that's more pollinator and bird plantings. Um, and if those are designed well, they should be less maintenance than the lawn is now. And you'll probably get a lot more enjoyment out of it. Thanks to both of you for being with us, Kara. It's a lovely home. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. And that home in Lakewood belongs to Kara Ferris, who contacted us through Colorado Wonders. We also met Allison Peck, landscape designer and founder of Matrix Gardens in Boulder. We spoke in 2019. Allison died last April and, as you heard, leaves a lush legacy. When we come back, climate change anxiety leads to musical inspiration. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There's a role for everyone at Colorado Public Radio. You're already a listener. You may even be a member. Have you ever wondered about working at CPR? A nonprofit with a history that starts in 1970, CPR's news and music radio signals today reach over 90% of Colorado's population, while podcasts and online content reach people across the nation. It takes a committed team with roles on and off the air to make this happen, and your skill set and experience may be just what we're looking for. Learn more at cpr.org careers. Folk singer Woody Guthrie released Dust Bowl Ballads in 1940, which explored drought, dust storms, and mismanaged farmland. On the 14th day of April of 1935, there struck the worst of dust storms that ever filled the sky. You could see that dust storm coming, the cloud looked death-like black. And through our mighty nation, it left a dreadful track. Well, this album inspired Fort Collins musician Logan Farmer. Farmer wanted to write his own concept album, imagining songs that farmers might sing in the face of climate change. The debut record morphed into an exploration of his own climate anxiety. We spoke in 2020. And Logan, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you so much for having me. 
So your new album is called Still No Mother. And how's your climate anxiety right now? It's a it's a constant struggle, you know, um, and it's a it's a difficult reality to live in. Um, I don't think that we can often comprehend it. So, I, you know, just like everybody else, you know, I get distracted and I watch the bad TV and I don't think about it for a while. And then I remind myself, I don't know, of that understanding. Do you think that this album was made in part to be, uh, for lack of a better term, preachy? I mean, is it that you want to make sure people redirect their attention to climate change? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think when I write, I like to pretend I have control over what I'm writing. Uh, But this particular record, I mean, it it turned into something that I didn't expect it to. And uh, I don't think it's preachy. I think it could be any... It could be any crisis that you're facing in life. It just so happened for me to be climate anxiety, which is something that I think, you know, we're all dealing with in our own ways. Yeah. And so this was very much a way for you to work through your own anxiety. We'll talk more about that. But here's the first track. It's called River Black. In some kind of protest, I know it's true. Paralyze each moment The woman is age The river play When all my time's through Will you not say My name Each day So in that, we hear lyrics like, The home I knew is ash, the river black. Talk about prescient. My goodness. Why did you decide that this this tune should be the entry point of the album? Yeah, well, that was one of the first uh, songs I wrote. I knew that I wanted to write um, an album about climate change, but I didn't really know how to go about doing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and then I actually read this book by uh, Paul Kingsnorth, who's a... um, He's a, he's a fiction writer, but he also was an environmentalist. Um, and he wrote this book called Savage Gods about uh, kind of just writing being this ancient and kind of elemental force. Uh, and that kind of, I think, was a big inspiration for me. Um, this, this song just kind of came out of that. And um, it's kind of about, you know, trying to hold on to the present and trying to hold on to memories uh, psychologically while you stand on the precipice of this, you know, impending crisis which to me felt like a pretty good jumping off point for the rest of the record, uh, which is, of course, about, you know, living within that reality and understanding it because often there's almost like a self-defense mechanism that prevents us from really grasping uh, the reality of it. How did you realize that this wasn't going to be an album imagining other people's songs? Because you thought, gosh, maybe I will imagine what farmers would sing in the face of climate change. But it, it really became writing for your own catharsis. That, that was an evolution. Yeah, it was. Um, it was unintentional, for sure. And I think um, looking back at it now, you know, I, I don't think there is a lot of art that addresses the psychological ramifications of uh, the climate crisis. And so I think in that way, it's a little bit unique. Um, I've written a lot of you know, more storytelling kind of songs before and more, you know, fictional characters. But this something, this is something that just was really hitting home for me. You know, it was just something that I've, I've, I've been 
a little obsessed with with the climate crisis for a while now. So it was inevitable, I think. I wonder what sorts of decisions you've made in your life or changes you've made, choices you've made, Logan, around climate change. Like, what's what's been your decision about what your family should look like and stuff like that? Oh, sure. Yeah, you know... Um... It's one of those things that when you really when you really get deep into it, you start to realize that everything you consume is is you're kind of making an ethical decision. And so, yeah, you know, I mean, I I, I try to eat a completely plant based diet, for instance, and I'm I'm not having kids and all that all that kind of fun stuff. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you know, I mean every every action you do helps, I think. But it is you know, I think humans we're just we're natural consumers. That's what we do. And so I think if you can try your best to ethically consume. And to do the research, compost, all, all the stuff you could do, all the stuff that you are aware is out there, uh, just educate yourself and try to make ethical decisions. That's what I do, at least. And I'm not an expert by any means, but the information's out there. A few of the songs on this new album also have music videos. You, you made a video for one track called Rome Through a Fog. So it is written I'm afraid of myself For listen I remain someone else I'm gonna need more in this video there's a farmer tell, tell me about the farmer and what we see on screen Okay, yeah, sure. Um, so the, the video uh, was directed by my friend and, and frequent collaborator, uh, Ben Ward, who's this, he's an amazing um, photographer and cinematographer here in Fort Collins. But uh, yeah, no, he, um, he spent some time in uh, eastern Colorado. He spent a couple of days with this cattle rancher that he was introduced to. And um, the video itself is, is essentially a, uh, it's almost like a mini documentary. It's just the, uh, the, the daily routine of this rancher. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, 16 millimeter film, beautiful, almost has like a Terrence Malick, uh, kind of look to it, but the, the video itself is very hyper-realistic and, um, you know, I, I think that it's, it's important to acknowledge this issue as not being something that's foreign or something that can just be discussed by, you know, scientists or like, God forbid, politicians, but, um, <laughs> it's, it's a reality. It's a reality that we're all living in and it's affecting all normal people. And so I just wanted to show one of those normal people uh, living their life. And it, it's, yeah, it, he, he did a beautiful job. Ben Ward is, is amazing. So uh, the last song on the album, No One Owes Us Anything, seems to be sort of the most direct when it comes to the theme of climate anxiety. Forty years later and there's no more ice in my on a kitchen. Everything together better add up to a lot 
Say just a few words about this song. Yeah, um, yeah. So like you said, that's the last track on the album, um, and it's kind of about uh, like the collective guilt that we share for what we've done to the planet. Um, and it's kind of it's a, it comes from a place of kind of bitterness. It's kind of where I was, a little bit of resentment at the time. Um, and it's just kind of you know about how we may not deserve anything less than what we've been given. Yeah, we're not owed any type of quarter. You know, I mean, from this elephant in the room. You have a really lovely voice, and the instrumentation on this record is so lush. There are also field recordings on the album, and in fact, the album ends on the sound of seabirds and glacier chunks falling into the Atlantic. Yeah. I really feel transported when I listen. Do, do you think Woody Guthrie would approve? Um, yeah, it's hard to say. I, I, maybe, but you know, I think um, he might. Fort Collins musician Logan Farmer. We spoke in August 2020. His debut album at the time, about living through climate change, is still no mother. If we lose our strength is If we lose our faith, is And that is Colorado Matters on this Earth Day, with special thanks to Haley Sanchez and Michael Elizabeth Sackis. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.